So you know when you put something somewhere for safekeeping in like one of your safe spots Mm -hmm. and then for the life of you, you cannot remember where that safe spot was when you go back to find that thing? Yes. It's like I knew that I was putting this somewhere safekeeping that like, ooh, I'll remember this. And no, past Tyler, you're not going to remember this. (laughs) You're never going to remember why you chose that drawer or whatever. Well, and the thing is, it's like, I guess it is in a place it's so safe. It's even safe from me. I have no idea where it is. So this happened to me, as it does all the time. But it happened to me this last weekend. I have like this uh, trunk in my closet. And Mm -hmm. I knew I had some books in it. But I couldn't remember what books they were. And I had remembered that I had the key in my wallet. And I'm like, oh, no big deal. So I go to my wallet. No key. And I'm like, oh, fuck. Was it a different wallet? No. Was it my purse? No. Literally looked through every single bag, purse, wallet that I own, and I can't find it. Oh, my Lord. That's a lot. And so I'm literally thinking, I'm like, okay, I need to pick the lock or something. Like, are these books that important? Do I really care? But at that point, you know, I was really determined. So I did care. So I'm looking, I'm looking, and then it dawns on me. Look at your bookshelf. There's a spot I have on my bookshelf where I have a couple of, like, important things. It was right there, plain sight. Of course it was. I spent like 45 minutes digging and searching. And oh my God. then it, you know, it gets even further. So you remember when I first moved to Dallas nearly a year ago and I had like all my artwork, you know, I have like an ungodly amount of artwork, but I had yeah. this one piece that I couldn't find anywhere. It's one where it's like a map with like a woman painted over it. It's a huge piece that I wanted to get framed. And I've Mm -hmm. had it for years. I've just never framed it. And I was finally like, here's the perfect spot to hang it. I've searched for this for nearly a year. Guess where it was? In the trunk. It was in the trunk. (laughs) Like Because of course, when you're packing, you're like, oh, let me put it with the books for safekeeping. That makes sense. Lost for a year. Literally, I was so disappointed. I bought that back in 2012. I was so close to reaching out to the artist and being like, hey, is there any way, do you have any other copies? Because it's a print, but like prints come in limited numbers and it's an artist from Italy. And I'm just like, oh my God, why did I do this? Anyway, I found it. So like literally best moment. I'm I'm happy for you. I was about to say proud of you. I guess I am. For finding the key that unlocks the mysteries of my mind and where the fuck I put things. Uh, Yeah, basically. (laughs) Um, Well, hello, everyone. This is Blood and Wine. I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler. And I am thinking of too many safe places for my own good, I guess. I can't remember a single one of them. Fair. I mean, thankfully, now I just have, like, two safe spaces that I try to keep, but... I mean, same. I lose everything, though. I wish I had, like, a loose floorboard or something where it could be, like, a really cool, safe place. You live in an apartment. I don't have a loose floorboard. I know. It would, like, you know, look down onto the third floor neighbor. (laughs) You'd drop your secret things into their kitchen. (laughs) Okay. um, I'm really hoping there's more than just, like, the layer of laminate between me and my neighbor. Nope, that is it. Very thin. When the, the floor cr- creaks, it's because you are you could fall through. That is why you can always hear people walking above you. This mm-hmm. is why I always live on the top floor, by the way. 
God. Uh, <laughs> so I'm that bitch that's walking everywhere. You are. You just put on your stilettos at midnight and just walk around the apartment. I just click, 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 click. I, I have my salsa dance nights at about 1230 on Wednesdays. <laughs> I would. No, no, no. I would straight up go upstairs and be like, can you shut the hell up? I wouldn't because I'm super <laughs> non-confrontational. But I would be angry in my apartment. Well, you can just be that little sourpuss. No, I'm just kidding. I will. I will. Well, shifting focus from something that I would absolutely hate to something I absolutely love, let's chat about Patreon. First and foremost, I want to thank our new Chardonnay Syndicate family members, Megan Douglas, Lana Harrison and Wayne Priest. Thank y'all so, so much for joining the family. Welcome to the Blood and Wine family, you guys. We are so excited to have you guys. I hope y'all are loving the murder minis, the bottle talk, all of those different things. And hope y'all are just loving the podcast in general. We know y'all are, and it's why you're on Patreon. And while you're at it, if you haven't subscribed to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, follow us all the places, Google Play, be sure to do that so you get notified every week when a new episode drops. So I'm going to just jump into the topic here. This one is a lot, man. It's a lot. Let me tell you. So it's been a few weeks since we did our episode that focused on the decade, the 1960s, and got some great feedback from it. So I was like, you know what? It's my turn to pick the topic. Let's hit up the 70s. And I was going through a list. I saw a list that was like the most famous killers from the 70s. We basically done them. It's like Gary Ridgway, the Zodiac, Son of Sam. And I'm like, oh my god, we really are getting into that period of 70s and 80s where basically everyone was a serial killer. I know. I really don't know how we have any survivors of people who were born prior to, like, 1995. I I mean, pretty much. How a big-ass reset button was not hit by everyone being either murdered or a murderer? I don't know. It literally is one of the 70s. I feel like we're one of the most terrifying times in the, like, terrifying decades in this world. Yeah, I mean, outside of crime, you had, like a big ass recession hit there was a lot of shit going on it was i mean following the 60s and we kind of discussed all like the social huge changes that happened in the 60s and the 70s was just kind of really the impact and aftermath of a lot of those things happening totally and i mean shit just look at a sears catalog and look at what people wore and that's just that's how crazy the 70s was honestly true but yeah, this was this is going to be an intense episode. I can already tell everyone from the get go, and that's all we have to tell you is the year. And you're like, ah, yes, crazy fucking mm-hmm. episode. I mean, I feel like you could flip a coin at any of our episodes. One of us is probably doing a case from the seventies. Seriously, it was not hard for me to find something, which is horrifying. Same. But before we jump into the horrors of the 70s, let's pour some wine. It's wine time. Yes, it is. Absolutely. What wine did you get today? So the wine I got for tonight's episode is the 2018 Technique Cabernet Sauvignon from Sonoma County. Um, And it's actually from Alexander Valley in California. This one is a beautiful $7 bottle, which, you know... I I love my like six, seven, 
eight, nine, ten dollar bottles at Trader Joe's. They really are some of the best values that you can get there. Um, I think the the wines that I get are generally like five and six dollars. Like I do not spend a ton of money on wine when I go to Trader Joe's. And no. this one, I read some reviews and people are like in that same vein saying this is a fantastic value cab. I mean, it's an Alexander Valley one. So we already know it's going to be fantastic. So it's a dark ruby red color and it's a very bold and dry wine with medium acidity and pretty mellow tannins. So it's not going to bite or anything. It's going to be pretty mm-hmm. smooth. Nice. It has notes of blackberry, black cherry, red fruits, and also has some hints of oak and vanilla. So honestly, this sounds like your very typical California cab where it's yeah. got all of the things that are why I love cabs so much. But with that, I honestly don't want to waste any more time getting into this bottle. Yeah. I mean, ooh, show me the label. Oh, it looks like it has one of those, um, what are the ceiling nipples called? Mandala? No. I think that's a Buddhist sand art. Um, ceiling nipples? You, you know, the, the art little, that like rich people in the 70s and 80s was like, I'm gonna put this in my formal dining room. The ceiling nipples i don't know <laughs> i really don't think that's what they are come down to farmer's branch and get your ceiling nipples okay i think it's not <laughs> mandala i feel like it's a word similar to that i'm 100 percent sure that half our listeners are screaming it right now i'm sorry i can't hear you actually they're just laughing because you said ceiling nipples <laughs> i don't know I- but you know exactly what i'm talking about i do but um that's you know, not a thing. It, it does look similar to that. To me, It, I, I feel like it looks like science-y because it's like technique. Like, what's the wine technique? I don't know. Oh, yeah. I don't see that at all. Okay. Well, I do. And I'm going to get into it. Well, I hope that our therapists don't use that as an ink blot because I apparently see architecture nipples and you see science. What does that say about us? <laughs> I see science. Like, it's something, I don't know, that you just see. I mean, I assumed you just started, like, Beautiful Minding. You know, I've actually never seen that movie. You beautiful, know, I haven't either, mind. but I I am willing to make the reference because I at least know the scene. Are you thinking of A Beautiful Mind or are you thinking of Rain Man? I've never seen Rain Man, but in Beautiful Mind, their eyes do the, like, <laughs> thing. That's That's the sound of eyes darting <laughs> back and forth. Oh, Okay, I felt like that was going to be a lot more powerful because it was really stuck in there. And then it was like, pop. All right. Well, I'm going to pour myself a glass. Ooh, that's dark. It is nice and dark. Like, I cannot even see through this wine. I mean, it's a cab. I wouldn't expect you to be able to, but nice. Oh my god, it smells so good. Okay, I'm so glad that this can breathe a little bit while you tell me about your wine. So what'd you pick? I picked the 2018 Scarlet of Paris Pinot Noir from Il Debut, France. Don't know why I pronounced France like that, but I did. Um, and it is one that has this gorgeous, like, art of this, I don't know, French woman wearing a little blue dress. Gonna and assume it's parasol. Scarlet. Oh, yeah, that would actually make sense. Her name is actually uh, Betty. Betty, Betty of Paris, but they Scarlet call her Scarlet. Scarlet is what she calls her uh, parasol. But yeah, it's this really pretty like lithograph style um, art piece. Um, it's a French Pinot, which I don't know if I've ever had a French Pinot. I may have. I don't know. 
But um, it is described on their website as this wonderful Pinot Noir with great fruit flavors of raspberry, cherry, and plum undertones. And it's very silky smooth and flavorful. But when I'm getting a wine, I like to know what the, you know, venter says, how they describe it. But I really want to know how people describe it when they have it. So I always like to look at, you know, reviews that people write. Um, One person said that it's fruity, has a sweet aroma, light body, and a slight sweetness. Which I was like, okay, a little nervous. Another person said it's very smooth, not too dry. You can taste hints of raspberries and cherries on the palate, as well as some spice. And that goes great with steak and seafood. And I was, as I was reading, uh, basically all the reviews mentioned that this one is an amazing value. I got mine for like $10, but it ranges from like 8 to 12 And it's a screw cap, so it's easy to open. You know, I've had the Scarlet of Paris Rosé, and it's fantastic. It just makes me think of crafting, like Plaster of Paris. <laughs> I hope it doesn't taste like that. I hope it doesn't either, and I really think that's weird. You're weird. It's Scarlet of Paris, Plaster of Paris. It's not that <laughs> far of a leap. Oh my gosh. That is a lot darker than I thought it was going to be. I know, I was expecting it to be very light. It smells a little sweet. I'm worried. I'm scared. I mean, it's a Pinot Noir. It's definitely more fruit forward. I mean, that is true. And it when people describe wine as sweet, or like, it's kind of sweet, or not super dry, I'm always like, okay, but what is your palate of that? Because exactly. I know you describing something as sweet, I would probably not describe the same. I agree. A lot of wines, I think your level of you know, this is a sweet wine varies very much from people. And then there are some wines that I'm like, no, that's fucking sweet to everyone, like a Moscato. Yeah. (laughs) But that is not this. And with that, I think let's cheers. I want a drink. Cheers. Cheers. Oh my god, that's awful. (laughs) Just kidding. It's really good. I just feel like we never have reactions that are like super negative. Um, But I can't lie. We're about to. Oh, <laughs> oh I no, mean, your face. Is okay, it sweet? Uh, it's it's not, really. I can definitely see what they're talking about, but it is still dry. I would never even describe this as a semi-sweet. I wouldn't even describe it as a semi-dry. It's just very basic. Do you think it needs to breathe more? Yours is barely breathed. You need to give it, you need to resuscitate that wine. Or is it just bad? I think it's just not my cup of tea. It's just super basic. Like, it, it's red water. So, like, really short finish, no true flavors really short, sticking out? Well, on the palate, nothing. The only flavors that I'm getting are in the finish, and it's just a little pop. And, yeah. I mean, I'm going to drink the whole thing because I opened it and I bought it, but... Well, mine is actually amazing. I was very, very, very much joking uh, when I had my fake reaction. This one is really smooth. It's very much a classic cab. You're allowed to be super jealous of the wine that I'm drinking right now. Um, I am. But one thing I wanted to just note about mine before you come into yours. You mentioned smooth. That's what it is. It's smooth, but that's all it is. Oh, You know how some wines need like just a little bit of acidity or a little bit of sharpness to kind of, I don't know, pinprick the flavors into your tongue? This one's only smooth. 
So that's essentially the wine that Jesus made when he turned water into wine, but he didn't like, it was his first try. I mean, you know, there is a reason why his vineyard did not, you know, go on to become Robert Mondafi. I mean, however, the man could turn water into wine, apparently. So I'm just going to say that's a skill that not, I guess, technically, that's part of how you make wine. But anyway, okay. So. Okay. I'm going to go back to my wine. Yes, yes, yes. So it's very smooth and it's less fruity than I thought it would be, which is all fine by me. That's, but I, yeah, that's good for you. Instead of those red fruits, those are not what's popping for me. It's definitely more those black fruits, like the the blackberries and maybe black cherry, which in my head is a little bit sweeter and not as tart as cherry cherry. So we'll go with that. Okay. But highly recommend this, especially for $7. Like, come yeah. on. This is amazing. I'm going to enjoy this wine. I'm going to drink mine. Well, now that we've got our wines, I'm going to jump into my case because... That's how this podcast works? Generally. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, um, tell me about the case that you brought today from the 70s. All right. The case I'm covering is serial killer Dean Coral. Is that one I should know? I don't, so... And you'll understand why when I'm done. Oh, Okay. So the sources I used, there was an article in Texas Monthly that was titled The Lost Boys, and it was written by Skip Hollinsworth. So Skip writes a lot of these types of articles for the Texas Monthly, and they're long, they're detailed, they're amazing. I highly, highly recommend seeking this article out and reading it and reading anything by Skip because... I mean, I will be totally honest. I I obviously borrowed heavily from this article because the way he writes, it's storytelling, it's horror, it's you're totally seeing what's happening. Um, But there's a lot of information. And that's another thing I do want to say. There's a lot of information about Dean Coral. There's a lot of things that happened. And I'm not going to go into all of the details. And for Mm -hmm. those of y'all who know the story will understand why. I would be talking for days. But, um, so definitely check out this Texas Monthly article. The second source that I used is an article from All That's Interesting, and it's called The Story of Candyman Dean Coral by William DeLong. Oh, I don't like that. No, it's disgusting. So I'm going to just jump right into the horror. In December 1970, two teenagers disappeared from the Heights neighborhood in Houston. Then another, and then another, and then another. As the number of missing kids, like, just starts stacking up, no one was realizing that the most prolific serial killer the country had ever seen at this time, along with two teenage accomplices, was living very comfortably, just right amongst them. Holy shit. So on April 20th, 1972, again, here in Houston, or there in Houston, Texas, 17-year-old Mark Scott left his home, he walked out the front door, and he was never seen again. His parents, Mr. and Mrs. Scott, and their younger son, Jeff, they called all of Mark's friends, and, you know, they get in their car, they call his classmates, they're asking if anyone has seen him, they roam the streets, they look down the alleys, and they're just stopping at local drive-in restaurants, literally everywhere. Because, again, this is the 70s, no one has a cell phone, if someone goes missing, you gotta go look for him. They even called all the hospitals to see if he had been admitted, when No one had admitted him. No one had seen him. They couldn't find him. They officially went to the police office to report him missing. 
But then a few days later, they got like this hastily written postcard from Mark. And on this postcard, it said, how are you doing? I'm in Austin for a couple of days. I found a good job. I'm making $3 an hour. Woo. They're pa- <laughs> I know. God, how things have changed. Um, That's why I moved to Austin, too. I know. For you're, a little more than $3 an hour. You're up to four, right? Well. four fifty, three eighty five. but. Oh, okay. Almost. Fingers crossed. So his parents, they didn't believe that this postcard was from him. They were like, there's, there's no way. And. Yeah. Mark never wrote again or ever called them. Flash forward over a year to August 8th, 1973. And one of the Houston television stations cut into their regular programming. According to the reporters, a 33-year-old man named Dean Crowell had been shot to death at his home in Pasadena, which is a suburb of Houston. The po- oh. I, yeah. I did not expect th- that to be where your case was going. So the police had learned that Coral had been renting a metal storage shed located off of a really narrow, narrow dead-end street about nine miles southwest of downtown Houston. Detectives were at the shed, and they were digging up the bodies of teenage boys, all of whom who had apparently been murdered by Coral. Coral had once been a resident of the Heights neighborhood, where he helped his mom run a small candy store that was there on West 22nd Street. When Mr. and Mrs. Scott are watching this news report, they knew right then that their son had to have been a victim of Dean Coral. By the next day, police officers were exhuming bodies from a wooded area near Sam Rayburn Reservoir, which is outside of Lufkin. Seriously, Lufkin, I, like, am scared of it. Just gonna straight up say I'm scared of Lufkin. Um, For a small-ass town, rando town in Texas, we have brought it up way too much. Way too many times. They were also exhuming bodies on a beach at High Island, which was east of Houston. Some of the bodies were covered in a layer of lime powder and were shrouded in clear plastic. A few of the bodies still had tape across their mouths. Others had nylon rope um, wrapping their around their necks. And some had bullet holes in their heads. One boy was supposedly even curled up in the fetal position. Within a week, the remains of 27 young males had been found. A couple of them as young as 13 and one as old as 20. The New York Times quickly labeled these killings the largest multiple murder uh, case in the United States history. Because you've got to remember, this is 1973. So the phrase serial killer does not exist yet. So... This, these 27 victims surpassed the 13 women that were choked to death by the Boston Strangler in the early 60s, the 16 people shot by Charles Whitman in 1966 from the tower at the University of Texas, and the 25 victims killed by Juan Corano in California just two years earlier. Soon, reporters began flying into Houston from every corner of the United States and even from around the world. I mean, people were coming from like Pakistan and Japan to Houston to cover this case. Even Truman Capote, hoping to revive his floundering career and produce his next In Cold Blood novel, showed up to do research on the case. Of the victims, the medical examiner's office was able to identify at least 20 of them had been residents of either the Heights or an adjoining neighborhood there in Houston. Oh my god. Or they were Houston boys who had been somewhere in the Heights area right before they disappeared. So everything's attached to this neighborhood. 
all of these Heights victims had gone missing between December 13th, 1970 and July 25th, 1973. And 11 of them attended the same junior high. Okay, how was... I'm just trying to understand how the missing wasn't a bigger thing. Because I'm imagining, I mean, it's a big neighborhood, like city district type neighborhoods, like, I don't know, Prospect Park in Brooklyn, and not like Magnolia Estates, the subdivision. Well, and that's exactly it. How in the hell was it possible that so many boys could be snatched up in this one working class area of Houston that was just two miles wide and three miles deep. So like I said, bigger than like a subdivision, but it's a it's a neighborhood. Uh, it's not big. So how did this happen without anyone, police, parents, neighbors, teachers, or friends of these boys knowing what happened? And that's how we get to Dean Coral. So who who the fuck is Coral? I don't know, some candy fucker. Coral was known as the pleasant, smiling candy man of the Heights. That's what I said. Yeah, he was always handing out treats to the neighborhood children who dropped by his mom's factory. And there was actually a police officer who he went to school with who said um, that Coral was very quiet, well-mannered, well-groomed, and very considerate. And this police officer even married Coral's cousin. So, like, this guy was family, and he's like, he's a great guy. Coral had a girlfriend. Her name was Betty. She was a single mother, and she even let her children call Coral dad. No one in the Heights neighborhood could fathom that Coral, who had absolutely no criminal record of any kind, could be the worst predator in American history. Coral was raised in Indiana and Tennessee, and he came to Texas with his mom and siblings when he was 16 years old. So in 1962, the family moved to the Heights neighborhood in Houston so his mom could open up her candy factory. Coral ran the assembly line, um, and in his free time, in addition to handing out candy to all the kids, he would also invite them to the back room in the factory where he'd set up like a pool table. No. He would give the kids rides on his... <laughs> I know, seriously, no. But we that's only because of what we know. And This is why we have less murder serial killers today, because we're not like, kids... Going into the candy man's shop, into his secret back room to play games? Have fun. We'd be like, oh oh my god, no. We'd be like, absolutely not. I don't think so. Run away. No, Kayla Ken. There's peanuts in that factory. So, Dean even, like, gave kids riding on his motorcycle. He outfitted his van with cushions, carpets, and a TV set so he could take the kids on picnics. Literally, I'm just like, hello, serial killer. Oh, oh my god, no. How did, how did that not ring alarms in the 70s? Like, going into the back room of the candy factory? Okay. Getting candy from strangers? Okay. Going on into his new, like, cushioned van with a TV and being driven away to a picnic with this strange man? I, I, don't, I don't care how long ago it was. That had to set off some parents' alarm bells. But unfortunately, it didn't. As far as the Heights' parents were concerned, Coral was a perfect gentleman. They regarded his fondness of children to be no different than they would like a respectable scoutmaster. So it's like, oh, he's like the Boy Scout leader or whatever. You know, he's taking the kids in his van with cushions to picnics. Yeah, I was in Boy Scouts, and I wouldn't have... If my scoutmaster had a cushioned van with... uh, No. No. 
Later on, after his mom moved the candy shop out of Texas and into Colorado, Coral got a job working as an electrician at the Houston Lighting and Power Company. And so by 1970, he moved to an apartment about five miles southwest of the Heights. And about, you know, some point in time after his mom left Houston and he had his own place, that was when he decided to embrace this compulsion that he had apparently kept secret for years. He started inviting teenage boys over to his apartment, some of whom he had been eyeing since his days at the candy factory. So these were boys that he knew. But one of the things about this case that truly makes it so chilling is the revelation that Coral did not act alone. Oh, yeah, the two teenage accomplices you mentioned at the beginning. I completely forgot about them. That's why I went ahead and mentioned them, because uh, you get so sweeped into all of the other crazy shit that you forget until now. When I'm like, oh, yeah, by the way, the two teenage boys from the Heights that were helping him out. So they later admitted to police that Coral had recruited them to be his assistants. These were 17-year-old Wayne Henley and 18-year-old David Brooks. And they said that the two of them had lured boys into Coral's Plymouth GTX muscle car or his white van, asking the boys if they needed a ride or if they wanted to go drink some beer. They would take the boys to one of Coral's apartments or rent houses. Coral lived in multiple different places throughout this time. Henley and Brooks would help Coral strip them naked, tape their mouths, bind their hands and legs, and fasten them with handcuffs to a sheet of plywood that was about two and a half feet wide and eight feet long. Oftentimes, Henley and Brooks would force the boys to write a letter to their parents, you know, like the postcard Mr. and Mrs. Scott got. And sometimes they would even force them to call their parents, letting them know that they were okay and that they'd be back soon. Then this is when Kroll would get to work torturing the boys. He would, um, and this is graphic, so just a, a note for that. He would pull out the boys' pubic hair, He would insert a thin glass rod into their urethra, um, or he would stick a large rubber dildo into their rectum. Coral would then rape them, and then he would kill them. In their confessions, Henley and Brooks mentioned the names of many of the teenagers that they had helped murder, several of whom uh, were friends of theirs, including Henley's longtime buddy, Mark Scott. Henley and Brooks admitted that they helped Coral carry the bodies to his van or car, and they helped him bury them in one of these various private cemeteries. One morning, Brooks said in his confession that he and Henley spent a few hours fishing at Sam Rayburn Reservoir before they pulled a dead body out of Coral's van and dug him a grave. So, like, they drove to the reservoir, had this body, stopped and decided to go fishing before they buried it. I just want to know why. Like, I mean, obviously, Coral is this super fucked up monster, and that's why he's doing this. But why are these two boys helping him and knowing full well what they're doing? It's not like that they just think like, oh, they're taking people to the house, and then they don't know what happens after that. They know full well. They're helping, you know, dispose the bodies and all that. So just why? Well... Both of these boys were teenagers that were products of what was then called broken homes, which meant their parents were divorced. And Oh no. I know. I'm like, welcome to like most of us out there now. But 
they dropped out of school. They were hardly regarded, however, around the Hyatts as troublemakers. Like, even though they dropped out, like, they weren't seen as bad kids. Not a single person who knew the two teenagers understood how they could have turned so quickly into vicious sadists who were willing to do any of Coral's, like, monstrous things that he was asking of them. Yeah. And I mean, if the only bad, quote unquote, thing that they've done is drop out of school. I mean, I feel like in the early 70s, that would be a lot more common than you would see today. I agree. So how did they even meet Dean Coral? In the mid 60s, when Brooks was either 10 or 11 years old, he stopped at the Coral Candy Factory. At this time, it was a very small warehouse with an office in front and a loading dock in the back, and it was just across the street from Brooks's elementary school. Brooks lived with his father at the time, and he had a really bad relationship with his dad. So when he goes over to the candy factory this afternoon, there's Dean, and Dean wasn't making fun of him. Dean wasn't calling him a sissy. And so David started to idolize Dean, and... Dean became the first adult male that didn't make fun of him. And so again, this is a very young 10, 11 year old boy who has a shit relationship with his dad. His dad is make you know, emasculating him, making him not feel like he's worthy. And Dean paid attention to him. So Coral invited Brooks over to his apartment. And after he arrived, Coral persuaded him to pull down his pants. And at that point, Coral dropped to his knees and started to perform oral sex. For his silence, Coral started bribing Brooks with gifts or money um, just to keep him quiet. I mean, and that makes sense to my question of why and how a 17, 18 year old could do this because they've been groomed since they were 10 or 11. Mm -hmm. Well, Brooks, yes. According to those who knew Brooks, they said he wasn't gay and he actually had a girlfriend. And this is, again, like he has a multi-year relationship with Dean. So this is when he's older. He has a girlfriend who lived in the Heights and um, his attorney later would say that you just, you have to understand that Dean had become David's father figure. He had taken care of him, given him money when he needed it. He let him stay with him whenever David needed to get away from his real father And a man like that can have a lot of influence on a very young and insecure boy. And how Henley met Coral will come later. Okay. So in 1970, the first known victim of Dean Coral was killed. The victim's name was Jeffrey Conan, and he was an 18-year-old college freshman who was hitchhiking home from Houston, or to Houston, from the University of Texas at Austin. He was most likely picked up by Coral um, with an office with an offer of a ride to his parents' house, and you know, saying that Coral lived in that area where he'd be dropped off, and so it you know it wasn't any trouble. It wasn't long after Brooks met Coral before he realized that Coral was he had some pretty dark needs. So again, like this relationship is building between the two of them, and in 1970, when Brooks was 15 years old. He walked unannounced into Coral's apartment. When he walked in there, he saw two naked boys tied to Coral's bed. Coral um, was also naked and he was molesting these two boys. And he he sees Brooks walk in and he screams, what are you doing here? And Brooks like turned around and left. He's like, oh, fuck. Later, he said that Coral told him that he was a part of this gay pornography ring and that um, he'd been paid to send the boys out to California to pose for photos. And then 
Brooks said Coral changed his story and actually told him that he'd killed the boys and buried them in the storage shed. So Coral just like straight up tells him the truth. It's, it's likely that these two boys were Jimmy Glass and Danny Yates. They were two best friends who lived in Spring Branch, in the Spring Branch area of Houston. Both of them were 14 and they'd come to the Heights neighborhood on December 13th with Jimmy's father and older brother to attend an anti-drug youth rally and worship service. Then during the middle of the service, they got up. They were like kind of in the front area and they got up, walked down the aisle. If made, Like they're going to the bathroom or something. Please tell me they were just going to go smoke weed at the drug rally because it was a joke. And then they lived and everything was fine. Well, I already told you they were victims. Um, I'm blocking it out of my memory. They were never seen again. To this day, <sighs> no one knows how Coral met the boys and persuaded them to ride away with him. But what is known is that their disappearance was barely investigated. They were labeled as runaways. I feel like in the 70s, 80s, even into the 90s, like a preteen to young adult goes missing. And it's always labeled as like, they're a runaway. Yeah. It's, and never looked into. And I'm like, first off, how many fucking people are actually running away? No. It's not as like, common I, yeah. as they're making it seem. No. I mean, like, yeah, people do run away, but you should put the full force of your investigative abilities into it and find it. Because let's be real, if a 14-year-old actually does run away, they're probably going to be pretty easy to track down. Yeah. They're 14. They're not like yeah. masterminds. So... Brooks has essentially caught Coral in what he's doing. And again, Coral's like, I'll buy his silence. So he buys him a Chevrolet Corvette. And then he offers him five or $10 for each boy he brings back to Coral. And Brooks agreed to do this. Okay, so this is basically in the same time where, quote unquote, a good job from earlier is $3 an hour. Yeah. And he's offering him five to 10. So that today is... Like, I don't know, like, what, 20 to 40 bucks to fucking bring kids to him to rape and murder. One of the boys that Brooks brought to Coral was Elmer Wayne Henley. However, instead of rape and kill Henley, Coral realizes that they're getting along really well. And so Coral starts to recruit him into his rape and murder scheme with the same bounty per victim brought to Coral that he'd offered to Brooks. Henley says that he initially refused the offer, but his family was in some pretty um, tough financial times, and it caused him to accept it. And additionally, Henley also ended up seeing Coral as a father figure because he too had a really bad relationship with his father. Now, Henley's, this is a little bit different because like he met Coral when he was literally brought there to be a victim. Yeah. And like, just gets wrapped into this and is like, never mind. And so the type of relationship these two have seems like it's not as deep as the one he has with Brooks because there's not like those years of grooming, but. Well, and Brooks was like 10. Right. Henley's like a solid teenager, which teenagers are dumb and have a lot of growing to do, but I could see a 10 year old being convinced that this is okay. But like a 15, 16 year old. No, I'm sure a lot of it was the money. And Henley later said that, I'll be honest with you, it was important that Dean liked me. He was kind. And Henley also seemed pretty thrilled by the idea of being a part of this mysterious crime ring 
this was something that was very far beyond his normal routine life there in Heights. And then so driving around one afternoon with Coral, Henley saw a teenager with long hair, asked him if he wanted to smoke some pot. Soon, this young boy was in the car and then at Coral's apartment, and then Henley left. Coral then paid him $200 the next day. Henley didn't know what was going on with these boys. It was a couple, like a day or so so later that he found out that Dean had killed the boy. Well, and if he's giving him 200 bucks, that makes more sense than five or 10, because let's say that's a thousand dollars today. And if his family is hurting for money and he sees that, I I can see that more. Mm -hmm. I will say though, if you're, gonna do drugs and you don't have a friend you trust that does them to try it with don't do it i mean if if a stranger you've never met is like hey want to do a drug not to sound all like dare to be drug free but like if you're gonna smoke weed for the first time or i don't know drop acid or whatever just don't do it with a stranger do it with someone you trust shit well what makes it even more horrifying brooks and henley were recruiting their friends over to Coral's apartment. Most of the victims were their friends. That is fucking horrifying because, again, at this point, they both know exactly what that means and what's happening. It's not like, oh, I'm bringing my friends over to enjoy whatever. Like, it's to be raped and murdered. Yeah. And just like Brooks, Henley did not go to the police. And so even when Coral told him that he'd abducted his childhood friend, David Hillegeist, Henley didn't back away. Henley then brought his friend Mark Scott over to Coral's. So with the help of Brooks and Henley coercing their friends, Coral continued his vicious crimes and remained completely undetected. For the most part, again, these boys were all seen as runaways. What you've got to remember is that it was the 70s, and so there were no computers at the police department that could have alerted officers of all these numbers of missing boys, There were no Amber Alerts that um, could be broadcast and that would set alarms with the public. And there was no internet, so there wasn't that way to quickly spread the information within the community. So this is how, like, none of this was being linked together. So as a result, there were parents on one side of Heights that had lost sons, and they had no idea that there were other parents on the other side of Heights that were also missing sons. So if Coral had been able to maintain his alliance with his accomplices, there is no telling how long this killing spree could have lasted. But in the summer of 1973, Brooks starts to break away from Coral. He ended up marrying his girlfriend after she got pregnant, and they moved in together to an apartment that was outside of the Heights neighborhood. So he was no longer in that same area as Coral. Around this same time, Henley also tried to put some distance between himself and Coral. He attempted to enlist in the Navy, but unfortunately he was rejected. And then on August 8th, 1973, after two and a half years and 28 known murder victims, Coral finally turned on Henley after he lured two teens, Tim Kernley and Rhonda Williams, who, side note, Rhonda was the only known teenage girl to have been targeted uh, during these Houston mass murders. Yeah. So Henley brings these two teens over to Coral's apartment. Williams knew Coral from the neighborhood, and uh, she trusted Henley. He was her friend. And so she didn't really suspect that she was in any type of danger. 
The four of them partied throughout the night. They would huff paint to get high, and they were drinking heavily. And Fuck. they all passed out after all this partying. Henley then woke up and discovered that he was tied up alongside Kernley and Williams, and that Coral was screaming at him while waving a twenty-two caliber pistol. Coral was threatening, I'm going to kill you, but first, I'll have my fun. Apparently, Coral was furious that Henley brought a girl to his home. Henley just starts pleading with Coral to untie him. He was saying, like, the two of them could attack Kernley and Williams together, they could rape and kill them, and it could just be something that they do together. Eventually, Coral does untie Henley, and the two of them bring Curly into the bedroom to be tied up on the torture board that I'd mentioned earlier. When they were doing this, Coral placed the twenty-two caliber gun on the nightstand next to the bed. Williams, who survives the attack, she only spoke publicly about it in 2013, so fairly recently. She recalled how Coral's behavior had visibly shaken something loose in Henley's mind, and she said that he, Henley, stood at her feet and all of a sudden, he just, he turns to Dean and says he couldn't keep going on, he couldn't let him keep killing his friends, and that it had to stop. And that was when Wayne Henley shot Coral six times with the gun that he had taken off the nightstand and killed him. Oh, shit. So Henley untied Curly and Williams, and he called the police. Later on, Henley and Brooks confessed shortly afterward, and Henley offered to show police where the boys uh, they and Coral had murdered were buried. Within a week, investigators found 17 victims buried in a boathouse shed that Coral had been renting. 17? Mm -hmm. Another six bodies were in the Bolivar Peninsula, and four victims were buried in the wooded area at Lake Sam Rayburn. So, like, that fishing reservoir. Yeah. This totaled 27, and later on, another victim was found to create a total of 28. But there very well could have been more. In 1974, Henley received six life sentences for his role in the murders. And a year later, Brooks was convicted of one murder and got his own life sentence. Brooks has never spoken publicly since giving his confession. And the 12 grand jurors who indicted Henley and Brooks for the murders, they issued a very explosive report criticizing the police and the district attorney, saying their investigation left unexplored the possible involvement of others and related criminal activities. Some of the jurors were so outraged that they actually conducted their own investigations. They would drive around Houston, interview witnesses, and try to find out where more bodies might be buried. Oh, I guess I didn't know that jurors were privy to like that amount of identifiable information. But I guess it makes sense. I mean, they know where crimes took place, who's involved, they have full names, but them in conducting their own investigation... I mean, that right there goes to show exactly what you said, how furious they were with the police investigation. Well, and it seems like, and this is where I didn't do as heavy of research, but it it seems to me like the police took the confessions of Henley and Brooks and the victims that they found and like kind of, that was that. You know, oh, they didn't, it didn't yeah. really seem like they looked any further, which is what really pissed off the jury. I mean, I could see that being one of very few things that could bring... 12 randos together and be like oh no 
we actually need to take action here. Yeah. And then in 1997, the families of all these victims, they were completely devastated when they learned that a local art gallery in Houston would be showing a collection of paintings that Henley had done while he was in prison. They ranged from landscapes to pencil drawings um, of figures like Kate Moss. And this is something that we've talked about. Oh, mm-hmm. art is something that a lot of people in prison use as like this release. I mean, it's it can be very therapeutic, but ain't nobody need to be buying this shit. Same like John, like John Wayne Gacy. Like, no, why are you yeah. buying his art? I mean, to show it in a gallery, you know, you know, for it, yeah. Like I said, for it to be therapeutic and something that, like, they do or whatever, awesome. Great. It's it's good to have those kind of activities and stuff. To show it makes it such a thing. To me, it's one of the things that really gets at the core, or one of the core pillars, I guess, of our podcast, of that we want to focus on the victim, not the killer. And when you do things like show their art in a gallery, you're only focusing on the killer. And you're focusing on them in such a way that it almost removes any kind of stigma of the murders. I mean, yeah. that's why they're famous, but you are showing this sort of like, look at this art, look at this artist, not look at what this horrible person did to these people. Well, and it's not like, um, and again, I did obviously didn't contact the gallery or ask any of these questions, but I could see someone's perspective being like, oh, let's show this art. Maybe it will give us a clue into the mind of Henley and why he did these things. But I'm like, it's fucking... Bitch, it's landscape. It's landscapes and Kate Moss. I'm not really thinking you're going to find a lot of deep thoughts in that. Unless the landscape happens to be like the lake where they buried some of the people. But even then, yeah, it's no. it's like, no. So... Some of the parents and family members of the victims stood outside the gallery on opening night protesting. They had signs that even said things like, hang Henley, not his art. And despite the protest, 21 of the 23 paintings sold. That's disgusting. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's absolutely revolting. It's this like murderbilia that we've discussed yes. in the past, how it's like, wanting to own a part of the murderer and to remember them and not the victims. Like, I don't... Yeah. I, no, I I don't understand this and I can't even begin to understand this. Why? I don't, I don't know. Like even like a t-shirt that's like Dahmer's Diner. Like, come on. No, that's not funny. That's that's not okay. I mean, we read and study and take in the diary of Anne Frank. We don't take in the diary of an SS officer because we're looking at the victims of this. And I mean, yes, that's the Holocaust and World War II, but I just think it is fucking mind-blowing this murderbilia thing of not only i mean even removing the fact of like are you giving the murderer your money because i don't know i don't know how money and setting up selling networks works from prison but it's just that remembering the murderer and their stuff and not the victims that's not okay well and this is what brings you know we can even take this a step further and Obviously, we are true crime fanatics. Like, I'm not going to deny that. It's clear. But when you are spending your time, like, like, because I will say it's difficult not to be fascinated by some of these people. But as long as you're looking at that fascination in, like, not 
ooh, Ted Bundy was so hot. If you're looking at it in the what possessed his mind to do these things? How is he so manipulative? Like, if you're looking at it from a form of psychology and studying and understanding, I think that's okay. It's when we take it yeah. that that step of um, admiration where it's just, it's way too far. It's, to me, you're not getting the point. And um, sorry if I'm pissing anyone off. Like, y'all know this is our stance, that we stand for the victims. Yeah. And... We, I'm okay if we piss people off that feel differently. Like, yeah. I mean, if you're not looking at these murderers, these killers, these people that literally destroy lives, torture people, ruin families, are just some of the worst people. If you're not looking at that with some amount of abject horror, you really need to think about it. Yeah. And just take take another look. Because, I mean, it's fascinating. We love true crime. I mean, Mindhunter is a fucking amazing uh, book and series but i don't know it just there was a lot of that last year with the um the extremely twisted dark and fucked up fantasy no the the netflix thing with about ted bundy i know the, extremely wicked and shockingly evil that one where there was so much of like and i don't know how much it actually happened or was just so shocking that it happened but the people that would be like oh my god ted bundy is so hot like yes like future boyfriend and i'm like are you are you fucking insane like first off zac efron's hot if zac efron was a murderer he's not please lawyers don't come after us that's not okay no like you can look at ted bundy and be like he's attractive I can absolutely see how that was part of how he lured people in and how he was this unconvincing, attractive guy. Yeah. You'd be like, oh, yeah, no, he was hot. Because, yeah, I mean, people are hot. Mussolini was hot in his 20s. But when you make it like that's the thing, that's their thing, you're like, mm -hmm, fandom. No. Right. And speaking of Mindhunter, because I was going to bring this up, Henley is actually one of the characters interviewed in season two. So... If you've watched season two, he's the kid with like the long kind of reddish hair or whatever. And he talks a lot about Coral. And at the time, I didn't really know about Dean Coral. And honestly, that's one of the most flabbergasting things about this case and this entire story is that it's almost completely forgotten today. It's huge. Yeah. I mean, although there have been two books written about the murders that were hastily published they didn't stay on shelves for very long. And that's because the public soon became fixated on more of the media accessible serial killers who followed Coral, like Ted Bundy, David Berkowitz, who's the son of Sam, and John Wayne Gacy, who were all active serial killers in the 70s. I mean, yeah, I kept expecting as you went more and more into your case, especially with knowing how many victims there were, I kept expecting to hear something that, like, triggered a memory of, like, oh, it's that guy. And it never happened. I'm like, this legitimately is the first time I'm hearing about this. And it's from fucking Houston. And it was 28 young victims. Like, this is John Wayne Gacy levels of fucked up and has way too many fucking terrifying similarities. I mean, Candyman to Clown, young boys buried, and yet... I don't think I've ever heard of any of these victims. Yeah, I mean, it's horrifying. And there are no plaques or memorials to honor the boys who were murdered. And some of the current residents who've actually heard about Dean Quarles' rampage and his two teenage assistants, 
They assume that it's nothing but a bizarre urban legend that began and ended during the Nixon administration. So there are literally people in Houston who don't know this is real. Houston listeners, we know there's a lot of y'all. Do y'all know about this? Because if you if you do, like, let us know. Like, do people not know about this? I We're not in Houston, so. Yeah, but I mean, I'm not that far. You're a little further. But we should fucking, like, rename a park or something to the Victims Memorial Park or whatever. Like, this is, this is not okay for there not to be any kind of, like, public memorial. Because this is so many victims... The victims need to be remembered. No, I don't live in Houston, but I'm a petition city council. Well, and I knew of Dean Coral, but I didn't know all the details until I did this dive of research. So even though some people aren't really aware of this, from around the country, parents will still send handwritten letters to the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences, which was the former medical examiner's office, And they Mm -hmm. want to know if their sons who went missing in the early 70s might be buried in one of Coral's cemeteries. Needless to say, Houston got a ton of shit for not looking further into these disappearances. And it was world news. Good. So if you really want a deep dive in all of this, like I said earlier, please read this Texas Monthly article by Skip Hollinsworth. Because it gives a lot of detail, and if you really want to get pissed off even more so at the police's responses, um, there's also an area where the police are saying how homosexuality played a role. So if you really want to get pissed off, go for that. I mean, yeah, and we, we saw that when you did Dahmer in episode one. How I was like, oh, homosexuality? Look the other way. Well, and in these years, there were plenty of people who believed falsely that homosexuality was linked to pedophilia. I mean, like, literally, fuck the 70s. Yeah, I mean, there's a, um, oh, fuck, I don't remember what they're called. They're like the safety videos that would be shown in school in, like, the 60s and 70s. You know, the ones that are like, duck and cover under your desk to protect yourself from the bomb. Here's a cartoon turtle doing it. Anyway, there was one that I've seen. It's on YouTube, y'all. Get ready to be upset, angry, annoyed, whatever. It's about, like, the dangers of the homosexual. And it was, like, an educational, like, warning 60s video about the homosexual who will lure you into his car and take the little boy Tommy who was playing in his yard. And it literally is all, like, no, beware of, like, pedophiles. But the entire thing, it's, like, the homosexual. Like, Mm -hmm. gay people will do this. First off... Fuck y'all. But, I mean, that was how it was treated. Yeah. I mean, it's horrible. So to close this really, really horrific case, um, I will say thanks to Sharon Derrick, who worked at the Harris County Institute of Forensic Sciences, through DNA analysis starting in 2006, and a few personal interviews that she had with Brooks while he was in prison, or, I mean, he still is, all but one of Coral's known victims have been identified, because there for a while, they were not all ID'd. However, the body of Mark Scott has still never been found. So, that is the case of serial killer Dean Coral, who started off the 70s, and, you know, like, Gacy, I guess, like, finished it out in the in 78 or whatever. So, the 70s, literally such a fucked up time to be alive. Yep. Well, 
let's uh, continue down this dark road of the 70s. Tell me about your fucked up case. Well, it certainly is fucked up. And it is the Briley Brothers. And the sources that I used, Wikipedia, just the Wikipedia page of the Briley Brothers, an article from ThoughtCo by Charles Montaldo, and then an article from Oxygen by Eric Hawkins, which we've mentioned Oxygen a lot. They have a really great podcast, Martinis and Murder. But if y'all are into true crime, which if you're this point into the podcast, I assume you very much are into true crime. If not, hi! What, why are you here? Welcome. I mean, thank you, but why? Um, but if you're into true crime, Oxygen, along with their podcast, has a ton of articles that are amazing. Highly, highly recommend. Yeah, they have a lot. And I know I've definitely used them in a lot of my cases. So the three Briley brothers, they were Linwood, who was born in March of 54, James Jr., who was born in june of 56 and anthony who was born in february of 58 so they're all within like four years of each other basically and they were born into a pretty stable looking home with two parents in richmond virginia and the three of them were really highly regarded in the neighborhood they would like help the old people nearby like mow lawns they'd help them repair cars they were just some some good neighborhood kids But they also collected exotic pets. They had some tarantulas, piranhas, and boa constrictors, which is fucking weird. But you know what? Some people like animals. And awesome. I have a dog. Some people might think that's weird. It's not. Max is perfect. (laughs) Who are those people that think dogs are weird when you're talking about tarantulas and snakes? But I I get what you're saying, but... I, I don't know. People who like scales. There's literally someone listening right now, and they're like, you're cleaning up fucking cat hair. I've got a snake. I'm not cleaning up anything, except their fucking skin that they shut off. So I'm just going to say. Yeah, but you give the skin to, like, I don't know, a six-year-old neighbor kid, and they're like, this is the coolest thing ever! I.e., I had a snake skin in my room when I was, like, six. Ew! That I got from... I found it from, like, Boy Scouting when I was camping. I found a snake skin, and I was like, this is... I mean, I guess I can't say much because I you remember seeing like the skin of locusts like on the trees and you'd like, ew, that's fucking nasty. (laughs) It's the same thing. It's their exoskeleton. It's the same exact thing. No, locusts are so much grosser than snakes. What's the other thing locusts are called that's the more common? Cicadas. Cicada. That's, yeah, we don't actually have locusts. Locusts are a type of grasshopper. Cicadas. What? They bury themselves underground for 18 years, and they come up for, like, a week and die. Remember when they were here, like, a couple years ago? Scary. Fucking hate cicadas. Regardless, they didn't have cicadas as pets. They had tarantulas, snakes, and piranhas, which sounds expensive. I don't know what kind of pet store you get a piranha from. Whatever. Regardless. They had these weird-ass pets... And they also had a hobby of feeding small animals to their pet snakes, which is like, okay, you know. Snakes gotta eat. Snakes gotta eat. But they also like to torture animals. Fuck. I mean, I knew this was going to torture, obviously. I mean, I'm talking about animals in a murder podcast. What do you think is about to happen? McDonald triad. Basically. And their parents were so unnerved and terrified of this behavior that their dad, James Briley Sr., He kept his bedroom door padlocked from the inside at night when they were sleeping, and their mom moved out of the house. I mean, that's really bad news when you're scaring your parents. 
Yeah, when your parents padlock their door from the inside and they're not fucking. From their own children. Yeah. Like, first off, at that point, I don't know, call the police on your own kids. Put them in, I don't know, not private school. What's the private school for bad kids? Reform school? Yeah. Is that a thing? Yeah. Yeah, do that with them. Yeah. Um, if you're a parent and you're scared of your kids for more than, like, they're 13 and they're just really fucking mean. My daughter called me a bitch and it fucking broke me. Like, that, yeah, all parents deal with that. You're good there. But if you have to padlock your door, no. It's okay. It's not your fault. Get them away. Get them help. Or, well, I mean, yeah, do that. Get them help, not just send them away. I mean- Because you send them away, they're gonna murder somewhere else in the U.S. At their aunt's house or whatever. Regardless. It was said in one of my sources that their father, James Sr., even though he's fucking padlocking his door at night, he was the only one that the brothers feared. And that I was like, mm, what the fuck does that mean? Yeah. And it, to me, it looks like it's an abusive, some kind of child abuse is going on. But I do want to note that I read another source that said... You know, from the outside looking in, they're well-adjusted and happy. And they came from an unbroken home, which, like you mentioned, means their parents are together. Which is like, great for you. You're on that side of the half. Like, Also, can we just say, like, how horrible is that phrase? A broken family? I know. Do you know how many parents get divorced and then are great parents because they're happy? And then you get, like, you know, double holidays. Like, I mean, I get it. Divorce sucks. Divorce is hard. If you can't tell, Brittany and I, our parents are divorced. But, like, I'm very much of the opinion that sometimes divorce is absolutely the best thing that can happen. Yeah. Because then these two loving people who want to be parents and want to be happy, because your parents are fucking people. Sorry if it take, took this long to realize. But it's these two people that love you and want to be happy and are going to be happier with other people. And that's awesome. That's great. 100%. Like, I am a, I don't want to say a strong advocate for divorce, but like, you know what? Sometimes you marry someone and then y'all grow and you're like, you know what? This isn't working. You're great, but this isn't, it's not working. And sometimes they're not great. And it's like, you know what? I'm gonna go do me and be happy. Like, that's okay. But unrelated to the case, because the Briley parents are together they're very involved with their kids' lives, so I don't know if there was trouble at home. That was only one source I saw that was like they were scared of their dad, so I don't know. But on January 28th of 1971, Linwood Briley, the oldest, he was 16 years old, he's home alone, and he sees his neighbor, 57-year-old Orlean Christian. She's outside, she's hanging up her laundry. And for no fucking reason, he grabs a rifle out of the closet, aims it out of his bedroom window, and shoots her to death. It was just one gunshot. It killed her. And at first, nobody noticed she had been shot. They found her. She was dead. And because recently she had buried her husband and gone to the funeral, they were like, she, you know, had a heart attack or something. But... During the viewing of the body, that's how long it took. Some of the relatives were like, there's a spot of blood on her dress. Like, what's that? And so a second examination was done. And that's when they found a bullet in her back and opened a murder investigation. I'm sorry. 
the funeral home didn't even look at her body. Didn't they have to, like, clean it off? Right? I'm like, did y'all not turn her over ever? Because a bullet wound is pretty dis- There's a hole in someone. You would hope someone pays enough attention to that. Apparently not this funeral Or also, home. they just made an assumption. Oh, had a heart attack. Found her dead on her front lawn. Heart attack. Yeah. So... They did an investigation at the murder scene, and they did, like, a thing where they put some plywood where, like, the bullet would have gone and basically, like, lined up the bullet's path. And they found that it came right from Linwood's bedroom window. So they searched the house, found the gun, and they had this evidence. And so Linwood was like, yeah, I did it. And then he told the detective in this, like, flat, unemotional voice, he's like, I heard she had heart problems. She would have died soon anyway. Wow. Zero caring. I'm starting to think he's like a psychopath or something who like just can't feel emotions. Is that a psychopath? I think that's sociopath. Sociopath. I get them confused. But I do I think too. The no emotions like that, not able to connect with others in that way is more sociopathic. Yeah. That Yeah, but like, I, those are the vibes I'm getting because to say something like that with zero heart, zero care, that's cold. Yeah. It's also very cold to just straight up shoot someone out your bedroom window, so. I mean, true. That is true. But he was found guilty and he was sentenced to one year of reform school. Not even juvie. Kid went to, I don't know, fucking Boulevard Academy. What? Yeah. Eight years later, in 1979, you had a case from the early 70s. I have one that Spans touches the on the 70s. early 70s, <laughs> but really hits the fucking late 70s. 1979, that was when the three Briley brothers and an accomplice, Duncan Meekins, they began a seven-month series of just killings. So their first attack, it happened on March 12th of 79, and Linwood, he knocks on the door of William and Virginia Butcher, and he's telling them that he has car trouble, he needs to use their phone, and they're like, oh, I don't know. But he forces his way into the house, he holds the both of them at gunpoint, and then he brings uh, Anthony, his youngest brother, inside, and then they both tie up the couple and rob the house. And as they're doing this, they're covering each room in kerosene, and then as they're walking out... One of them throws a lit match into the house. And so they're packing their car with the shit they stole and driving away. And the house is burning. William actually managed to free himself and his wife. And they were able to get out of the house before it burned to the ground. Thank God. They would be the only survivors of this murderous rampage that lasts seven months. Oh, shit. So on March 21st, Michael McDuffie, he's a vending machine serviceman. He's assaulted, murdered, and then robbed in his house by the Brileys. A couple weeks later, on April 9th, they follow Mary Goen, who's, she's 76 years old, and she's just coming home from her babysitting job. They follow her into her house, and then they rape and murder her, and then they rob her house. So then on July 4th, the four of them saw 17-year-old Christopher Phillips kind of hanging around Linwood's car that was parked. And they're like, what the fuck's he doing? And thinking that he's probably going to try to steal the car. 
So they surround him and drag him into a backyard that's nearby. The three brothers wrestle him to the ground, and while he's screaming for help, Linwood drops a cinder block on his skull and kills him. Oh my god! That is gruesome! He's fucking 17. Yeah. Jesus! Then, on September 14th, a DJ, John Johnny G. Gallagher... He's performing with his band at a nightclub in South Richmond. And in between sets, he steps outside for a break. I imagine a smoke break. He's So he's like kind of stepping outside in like the parking lot or the alley or whatever. And he runs into the Brileys. They'd actually been kind of driving around town looking for a victim and not really found someone. So they came across this nightclub and they were like, you know what, we're just going to wait here, and whoever steps outside first, that's our victim. And Gallagher was the first person to come out, or at least the one that they chose. So Linwood assaults him and then throws him in the trunk of the car. They then drive him out to a an old abandoned paper mill. They take him out of the trunk and shoot him at point-blank range, and then throw his body in the river. So it's not even like... They're same of, like, going to people's houses and robbing them and getting their shit. It's just, like, straight-up murder. They're, like, completely changing their M.O. They're just these four boys who just want to murder. Like, they're doing this as if it's, I don't know, going out to shoot hoops or going out to the bar. Like, you know, things dudes do Did together. Did you just say shoot hoops? <laughs> yeah, it was, I don't know why it was the first thing I thought of. No, okay. I'm just, I just want you to know that I caught that and so did all of our listeners. But, um, but it, I mean, it's literally you're... just, yeah, like four dudes doing bro shit, except for them, that means murdering people and just yeah. doing it. Like It's not all getting into your friend's car and going to, I don't know, drink out by the lake. God, we grew up in a boring fucking town. But it's not that. It's murder. So on September 30th, a 62-year-old nurse named Mary Wilfong they followed her home to her apartment, and right when she is outside the door, they surrounded her and then beat her to death with a baseball bat. After she was killed, they took her keys, went into her apartment, and robbed it. And then five days later, on the 5th of October, just a couple blocks away from the house that the Briley brothers lived at, Blanche Page, who was 79... And her 59-year-old boarder, Charles Garner, both of them were murdered by their brothers. Blanche, she was bludgeoned to death, and Garner was assaulted with just a bunch of different weapons. A baseball bat, five different knives, a pair of scissors, and a fork. And the scissors and the fork, they were left embedded in his back. It was basically like whatever they could find lying around that could stab. Exactly. So similarly to my case, what's going on? Why aren't the authorities, like, tracking them down? Like, what's happening? I feel like a lot of murders are happening, yet they're, like, still on the go. They're still doing their thing. I honestly don't know. Richmond's a big Ur city. I mean, I think Richmond is, like, 200,000 people or something like that around this time. So it's not tiny, but not that big. So I don't know. And it's all of this happening at a seven-month period. It just seems like these... Well, and maybe maybe it doesn't seem like connections should be made since they changed what they were doing. But That's true. there's a lot of shit going down and 
So the final murders were the family of Harvey Wilkerson. He was actually a longtime friend of the brothers. So on October 19th, James leads his brothers to find another victim. So Wilkerson, he is, again, their longtime friend. He lives down the street with his wife, Judy, and their five-year-old son, Harvey. He sees them, and he just, he closes and locks his door. He's like, "Mm, no, I don't think so. But the brothers noticed it. They heard the door lock or saw the door close and lock, whatever. So they go over to his front door. They terrified him and were like, if you don't let us in, we're going to fucking kill you. I don't know exactly what they said, but whatever it was terrified him enough to let them in. So Harvey and Judy are both overpowered. They're bound and gagged with duct tape. Oh my god. And then Linwood raped Judy and then Meekins afterwards started raping her as well. And after that, Linwood drug her back into the living room. Linwood then kind of rummages around everything, looking for shit to steal, Mm -hmm. and then he leaves. The three remaining, the two brothers and Makins, they then covered the victims with sheets and shot both of them. Police were actually just in the general vicinity of the neighborhood and then saw the three of them running out of the house at high speed. And they'd heard these gunshots, they saw these kids running... And so they're like, okay, what the fuck's going on? Yeah, they, like, knew that these kids running right after the gunshots, like, that has to be connected. But not as much as you'd hope. Oh, no. Oh, I... Because... I thought this was it. Mm, it's not. Well, it took three days until the bodies were discovered. Which, I get it. I guess the cops can't, like, barge into that home. But Linwood Meekins were both arrested after a very short car chase. And James and Anthony both turned themselves in. So they were kind of on police's radar, but not really found. And then they got them. During police interrogation, Meekins was given a plea agreement if he, like, turned in evidence against the Brileys. And he took the offer, and he gave a full detail of the entire crime spree. And because of that, he was able to escape the death penalty and was put in a Virginia prison that was away from the Briley brothers. So his part of the agreement, he was given a life sentence plus 80 years. But what that meant is that he would be eligible for parole after 12 to 15 years. That always blows my mind that that is how that works. Because it's like life plus 80, but eligible for parole in 12. I feel like that didn't even make sense. That shouldn't even go together. I do not understand it at all. So Anthony Briley, who was the youngest brother, he got a single life sentence because for the most part, he wasn't really involved in a lot of the killings directly. James and Lidwood, though, they got numerous life sentences for the murders, but they only faced capital murder charges in the ones that they had physically done the actual killing. So ones that the prosecution would be able to prove you pulled the trigger, like you were the one who killed them. So Linwood was sentenced to death for the abduction and murder of Gallagher, the DJ. And James got two death sentences, uh, one for each of the murders of Judy Barton and her five-year-old son, Harvey. So in early 1980, they were both sentenced to death row. But it's not over yet. In May of 1984, which was just two months before their execution date, 
Linwood and James both led the state's only successful death row prison break and escaped from prison. Are you serious? Also, the only people who have ever escaped from death row? In Virginia. Oh, okay. I was about to be like, holy shit. But also, holy shit. So this escape was a coordinated effort with multiple inmates involved. And it basically resulted in the inmates taking over the death row unit. The Brileys both really wanted to kill the guards that worked there by dousing them in rubbing alcohol and throwing a lit match on them. Willie Lloyd Taylor, who was another death row inmate, he stepped in between them and was like, you're not going to fucking burn these guards to death. And then Wilbert Lee Evans, who was on death row for murdering a police officer... He stopped Linwood from raping a female nurse that was also there. It was like, no, you're not going to fucking do that. Literally, the people stopping them from doing these horrible things are also fucking monsters. That is how horrible they are. Well, and like, I just, I'm literally speechless right now because they're on death row and they're escaping. And then they're wanting to light the guards on fire and rape the nurse. And it's just like, guys... Is it your goal to escape? But no, it's not. Their goal is to just, like, mayhem. Yes, it's, like, just cause pain and suffering. So the group's initial plan was to escape to Canada, and two inmates, Lem Tuggle and Willie Jones, they almost succeeded. They made it to Vermont before police captured them. But the Brileys kind of split off from the group and went to Philadelphia to live with their uncle. And on June 19th, they were captured by FBI and police because they had placed wiretaps on the uncle's phone and realized that that's where the brothers were hiding. So they were taken back to prison, back to death row, and they basically ran out of appeals. And they were both executed in the electric chair in Virginia, Linwood on October 12th of 84, and James on April 18th of 1985. So... The youngest brother, Anthony, to this day, he's still in prison in Virginia. And every few years, he comes up for parole. But, you know, up until now, all of his applications for parole have been denied. And he is still there. I got scared for a second because you said up until now. And I was like, what shit? Did he just get, did they just let him out? Yeah, no, he didn't. I just didn't know how to phrase it. So. Oh, my God. But no, he's still in prison. But yeah, that is the case of the Briley brothers. They're ruthless. It's like they were looking at the murders in the same way four teenage boys look at spray painting something. You know, where it's just like, exactly. let's be rebellious. Let's do something crazy. Let's go fucking spray paint the bridge. Instead, these boys were like, let's go fucking rape, murder, and rob these people. Like, what the yeah. actual fuck? It's absolutely horrifying. All right, well, there's the 70s for you. There's the fucking 70s. I knew this one was going to be intense, but wow. It it honestly even exceeded my expectations of the intensity. Uh, I mean, absolutely, especially with the case you brought, which I think perfectly leads us straight into postmortem. Postmortem. I mean, I I think flat out your case, the amount of victims, the torture... Even the his two teenage accomplices who were a part of it were so manipulated and stuff. I think you're you brought the more intense case here. And 
Also, the most important fact is being forgotten. I mean, I've also never heard of my case, which is also not a good thing, but the fact of how fucking infamous your case should be and isn't because of how many victims, how many people don't have justice, no. Well, and I really think Dean Quarrel was overshadowed by John Wayne Gacy. Because just a half a decade later, John Wayne Gacy killed, what, 32 young boys and buried them in the crawlspace in his fucking house. And, like, while the similarities between the two are super fucked up, I think it's what made Dean Quarrel just overshadowed. And he just, yeah, (laughs) this is so fucked up to say, but it's like he wasn't in the spotlight. John Wayne Gacy was. And so that's the one that we think of when we think of multiple young men being killed. But fucking Dean Quarrel, he even had two accomplices, which, you know how our cases always have this crazy tie-in? Mine had two teenage boys doing really ridiculous shit. Yours had four. Yeah. Just being looped um... into this murder scheme and, like, that murder is a way to have fun and be rebellious and... I mean, I would argue that all of them in some way, shape, or form were brainwashed. Henley and Brooks by Dean Coral, and the Briley brothers and Meekins were almost brainwashed amongst themselves. Like, the four of them just, like, yeah. riling themselves up and, like, oh, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. I, I don't know. I, Absolutely. But um, but I will say, yes, I, I agree with you. Dean Coral, fucking horrible, horrifying super intense um you can pick next week's topic please don't pick the 80s i i I will not i will not uh don't don't worry the 80s will come but just not yet we need a break from the decades and instead of the decades we'll fill it in with other crazy killers yeah but can we talk about how much this cab has stained my lips because literally I'm not even right up at the camera and I can see myself in the little thing and I can see the fucking wine stain on my lips right now. Like it's bad. Oh, I mean, I can, <laughs> yeah, no, I can absolutely see it. And it's like, oh, Brittany, you're wearing inside lip liner. No, no, no. That's not how that works. <laughs> it's ombre. Because I've got lipstick on, so it's almost like this reverse ombre thing going on from the inside of my mouth. No, it's bad. But that just goes to prove how dark this freaking wine is. If lip liner on your, like, lip waterline, it's like the inside, the butthole of your lip, if you will, (laughs) I feel like that could be the next makeup trend of the 2020s. I've literally got wine lip butthole. (laughs) You have wine butthole. Oh my god, I usually have that the morning after drinking a bottle of wine. Well, I've got it around my lips right now. Wine butthole. I'm proud of you. I'm proud of your wine-stained butthole. But like... Honestly, that's probably a spa treatment somewhere. Wine butthole. Wine butthole. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But just a side note, the Technique Cabernet Sauvignon, not a good first date wine. You're gonna have fucking stained lips. Just saying. It's sticking to my lipstick. It's sticking to my lips. And unless that's what you're going for, maybe stick to Tyler's Pinot Noir that's red water. (laughs) Yeah, don't. I'll advise against it. (laughs) Don't stick to this. Just don't have this. Oh, my God. Um, Well, thank you guys so much for listening. If you um, enjoyed this episode, if you want to hear more, 
If you want to tell us what you think, be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Give us those five stars. We love you so much. Yes. And also while you're doing that, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Um, And again, thank y'all so, so much for tuning in. Love y'all. Y'all are incredible. This is Blood and Wine signing off. Excellent. Sorry, sorry, I burped. (laughs) XOXO. I'm leaving that one in. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye.